Okay, well, um, if you have a Bible with you, uh, you may want to turn with me to the book of Jonah. If you don't have a Bible and you would like to borrow one, please raise your hand and one will be delivered to you. And a third alternative is the words of the passages that I'm preaching will appear on the screen behind me. But the book of Jonah is towards the end of the Old Testament. It's one of the uh, Old Testament prophets, just before Micah and Habakkuk, a few pages away from the start of the New Testament. And this is the second uh, time we're looking at the book of Jonah. This is a story that we often feel, well, we know this story. I remember someone uh, coming up to me at the end of the last time I preached and said, you know, when I announced that Jonah was the book that I was preaching from, they just thought, oh, great, this is nice, you know, nothing too heavy, kind of nice and relaxing, uh, not too challenging. And at the end, they were like, oh, God's been with me. Um, you know, this is a book of the Bible, as all books of the Bible, that God can really speak to us from. So let's be open to what God wants to say to us today as we look at Jonah chapter 2. Um, before we read Jonah chapter 2, though, let's just uh, remind us what's happened so far. You know, you get these uh, TV programs, don't you, kind of previously on Jonah. Um, this is what's happened. Okay, so uh, Jonah is a prophet. He's God's prophet. He's been asked by God to go and prophesy in Nineveh. Nineveh is a vast, immoral city, and uh, he's been asked, go, and, go there and proclaim God's coming destruction on it. God is displeased with it. Jonah, you go, you stand in the middle of the city square and you proclaim my truth and my uh, judgment upon the city. Jonah doesn't want to do it. He's really not happy about it at all. We'll look at the uh, reasons for that another time later on. Um, But Jonah instead runs away to Joppa, uh, a port. He gets on a boat to go to Tarshish, which is the other side of the known world at the time. And he gets his head down on a pillow uh, in the boat, and he just wants to run away from God. Which all seems a bit futile, really, because Psalm 139 clearly tells us that we can't run away from God. Where can I flee from your presence? Nowhere. Nowhere is the answer. It seems a bit silly. The, The point is, though, God does allow us to try. God doesn't stop us trying to run away from him. We just can't do it. And it's worth remembering that lesson when we uh, start to run away from God. Instead, God causes a storm to blow up on the ocean. And uh, the sailors can't do anything about it. They're in fear of their lives. Things are just going all over the place. And what's going to happen? They all start praying to their own gods. They finally get Jonah. What's going on, Jonah? They find out it's Jonah's fault. They draw lots. It's Jonah's fault. And they say, what shall we do? What shall we do? And Jonah says, look, just throw me into the sea. Throw me into the sea, then it will stop. It's all my fault that this is happening. If you throw me in the sea, it will all be over. The sailors um, decide, well, no, we don't want to do that. So they do their best to try and row to the shore, but they can't do it. The wind and the waves are too strong. They get even stronger. Um, So in the end, that's what they do. They throw Jonah over into the wind and the waves and the rain and the sea. And it's amazing how quickly Jonah has got to this place. As you look through chapter 1 of this book of Jonah, you see he starts off, you know, chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord comes to Jonah. He's the prophet. 
Very, very quickly, just a few verses, he has got into the ocean in fear, about to die. Everything was going so well for him. And here he is now, miles away from land, about to drown. How quickly life can change. How quickly life can change. For Jonah, it had changed because he was rebelling against God. But actually, we can all suddenly find ourselves caught up in the storms of life. And sometimes they just seem to come out of nowhere. Things are just going along. All's fine. Suddenly, we're in the midst of a storm. We're in the midst of turmoil. And these storms in our life can come about for very many different reasons. But often, God is using them to get our attention and to bring us back into a living relationship with him. Because when things are going okay... When things are going well in life, actually, we can get quite casual. That's what, pretty much what Alistair felt God was saying to us this morning. We can just get casual about God. We can kind of think, ah, oh, you know, yeah, I used to prophesy. I used to really press into God. But, yeah, it's kind of just going along now. Life's okay. Turn up on a meeting on a Sunday. Come to my core group when, when, I, when it's free, when I'm free to do so. Yeah, things are going on okay. I might pray occasionally, I might sometimes read my Bible, but things are okay really. We just get casual. We can slip into thinking that actually we can do what we please in life. We can make the choices in life. We can call the shots. Yeah, we'll go and live here, we'll do this, we'll, uh, we'll take this job, we'll, we'll get involved in this sort of stuff. It's okay, it doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. Actually, God says, we're not free. We're not free once we've come into a relationship with him. In Romans 6, verse 22, Paul says, Now you have been set free from sin. We think, well, we're free. We're free to do what we want. He says, no. And have become slaves to God. The benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. Yeah, we've been set free. We're free from sin. But we've become slaves to God. What does that mean, becoming a slave to God? Well, if you're unsure, just go back on the internet. Arnold preached on it a few uh, months ago, or maybe a few years ago now. Um, But it's there. We're slaves to God. And it's at times like this sometimes when we're, we're on a kind of spiritual autopilot that God often gets our attention. And often that way he gets our attention is through these storms, through these situations in life. Not always, often in fact not, in a way that we will enjoy. But it's for our purpose. It's for our good. It's because God loves us. Jonah rebelled against God. That was why he was where he was. And he's now in the water. And so today we're going to look at chapter 2 and we're going to look at two prayers of Jonah. His prayer in the sea and his prayer in the fish. Let's read from uh, chapter 1, verse 17. But the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was inside the fish three days and three nights. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, in my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From the depths of the grave, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the deep. 
into the very heart of the seas. And the currents swirled around me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight. Yet I will look again towards your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. But you brought my life up from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord. And my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. But I, with a song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. Salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry ground. (laughs) Two prayers of Jonah. And you might think, hang on, that's just one prayer. There's one prayer of Jonah. What do you mean two prayers of Jonah? Well, the first prayer of Jonah is when he's in the sea. And uh, this is when Jonah first calls out to God. It's not when he's in the fish. So you see verse 2, he says, In my distress I called to the Lord. He's remembering back, while he's in the fish, he's praying to God, and he's remembering back a time when he was in the water and he called to the Lord. From the depths of the grave I called for help. He's sinking down to the bottom of the ocean, and it's there that he calls to God. So that's the first point in the story that Jonah prays. Up until that point, up until then, when he's in the water, he'd just been doing what he wanted. He'd just been doing what he felt was the best. He didn't want to follow God's instruction to go to Nineveh. He was going to go to Joppa. It was fine. Things seemed to be working out okay. There's a ship. That's fine. I'm going to get on the ship. Hey, great. I can pay the fare. No problem. The sailors are happy to take me. Fantastic. Great stuff. God, maybe I misheard God. He's just doing what he wants, though. He's just fooling himself. He's persuading himself. God's not going to let him. Even when things start going wrong, even when the storm breaks out, and the captain urges him in Jonah 1, verse 6, and says, you know, how can you sleep? Call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us, and we will not perish. There's no evidence there that Jonah does that. He doesn't seem to be calling upon God. But it's when Jonah is in the sea, the raging sea, the current, and he describes it, doesn't he, in here? He describes it in verse 5 the, uh, and, verse, and verse 3. He says, the current swirled around me. Oh, he can't control it anymore. He's being swayed all over the place. All your waves and breakers swept over me, waves coming over his head. He's gasping for air, he's swallowing the water, he's floundering. Waves are coming, the currents are going. The engulfing waters threatened me, the deep surrounded me. Then he gets seaweed wrapped around his head. So he can't see what's going on, he can't can hardly speak, oh, what's going on? And he starts to sink. He starts to sink down, down, down to the roots of the mountains. He sinks to the bottom of the earth, to the bottom of the sea. And it's then Only then, when all hope has gone, that he cries out and he prays to God. 
And this is Jonah's prayer. <laughs> he cries out for help. <laughs> I just wanted a drink of water. <laughs> Jonah got plenty of mouthfuls of water. He cries out, and that's his prayer. Help! Help! That's all he says. In verse 2, from the depths of the grave, I call for help. It's a cry of absolute desperation. Absolute desperation. But it's totally appropriate. Because he's calling out to the only one who can help. He's calling out to God once again when his life is virtually at an end. And he's calling out to God. Psalm 18, verse 6. In my distress, I called to the Lord. I cried to my God for help. From his temple, he heard my voice. My cry came before him into his ears. Jonah saying, from the depths of the grave, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. And he goes on. He goes on. And he says, he prays this. I have been banished from your sight. He knows God's hand is against him now. He knows he's, he's run from God. He's tried to escape. But he says, yet... I will look again towards your holy temple. What does that mean? I will look again towards your holy temple. Is, is Jonah just engaging in some kind of wishful thinking here? Is he saying, look, I'm, I'm sunk down at the bottom of the earth, but I think one day, you know, I'll go back and, and to Jerusalem and I'll see your temple. He's not saying that. He's not saying that. He's not even praying a prayer of faith that he's going to, look to a a temple, a physical temple. What he's doing is he's remembering what is written down in 2 Chronicles and chapter 6. I wonder how many of us know what is written down in 2 Chronicles and chapter 6. It's worth knowing the word of God because in desperate times, it's the word of God that will feed us. In 2 Chronicles chapter 6, Solomon builds the temple and uh, David has, has... has had a heart to build the temple, but Solomon is the one who did it. And the, and the temple gets finished. And Solomon prays a prayer of dedication to the temple. And this is, this is what he's saying, really, in, uh, in chapter 6 and chapter 7. He's praying to God, and he's saying, God, remember, remember people when they turn to you and call to you. So, for example, in verse 20... He says, may your eyes be open towards this temple day and night to the place which you said there you would put your name there. May you hear the prayer your servant prays towards this place. Hear the supplications of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray towards this place. Hear from heaven your dwelling place and when you hear, forgive. He's basically saying, when people pray towards the temple, towards this place that has been dedicated to God, Will you hear them 
and will you forgive them? And then he goes on and he gives lots of examples. So he, we won't go through them all. When a man wrongs his neighbor, um, he says, you know, and then he realizes he's done wrong. Will you forgive him? When your people have been defeated by an enemy, uh, but then they turn back and confess your name, will you forgive? He keeps going on and giving different examples. We get to verse 36 of 2 Chronicles 6. Here's another one. When they sin, God's people, against you, for there's no one who doesn't sin, and you become angry with them and give them over to the enemy, who takes them captive to a land far away or near, and if they have a change of heart in the land where they're held captive, and repent and plead with you in the land of their captivity, and say, we have sinned, we have done wrong, and acted wickedly. And if they turn back to you with all their heart and soul in the land of their captivity where they were taken and they pray towards the land that you gave their fathers, towards the city you have chosen and towards the temple that I have built for your name, then from heaven, your dwelling place, hear their prayer and their pleas and uphold their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you. Solomon is pleading with God, look, even when your people have, have, have turned away from you and so you have rightly punished them because you are a holy God and you are a jealous God and you do not want them to worship idols and go down that way. So they've gone and been taken into captivity and they're far away from here. But even there, if they repent, if they turn back to you and say, we have done wrong, oh God. Will you forgive us? And it says, and if they turn and pray and toward, and their hearts turn towards the holy city, towards the temple, Solomon's saying, will you forgive them? Will you forgive them? And after Solomon has prayed, God replies. And he replies in chapter 7 of 2 Chronicles. And he says this in verse 12. I have heard your prayer. And I've chosen this place for myself as a temple for sacrifices. When I shut up the heavens so there's no rain, or command locusts to devour the land, or send a plague among my people, you know, the punishments that I will do because I'm holy and they've rebelled against me. When I, when I do that, he says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, Then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayers offered in this place. God is saying, yeah, I will do that. I will do that. When my people, if my people will just recognize their folly that they thought they could live life the way they wanted to do and ignore God and worship other idols and get involved in stuff that is ungodly, if they humble themselves and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, he says, I'll forgive them. I will hear and forgive. So that is what Jonah is doing. When Jonah says, I've been banished from your sight, he's remembering the times that God's people got banished. He's remembering the times God's people went into exile and got taken captive by foreign powers 
But he knows it was God who did it. He, Jonah knows God has had his hand on this whole thing. It's no coincidence. You know, the, the say, you might think, well, hang on, the sailors have thrown him into the sea. No, he says here, you hurled me into the deep. You hurled me into the He knows it's God. He's not blaming other people. But he's saying, he's saying, yet I will look again to your holy temple. What that means is he's humbling himself. He's repenting. He's realizing he's done wrong. And he prays that he will be forgiven. And God is faithful. So God hears. And he answers. And he sends a huge fish to swallow Jonah up. Because he's turned. He's turned back to God. There are some things that we can learn from Jonah here. And about God. When we humble ourselves and cry out to God, he answers. He answers. Earlier on the boat, Jonah seemed to have just accepted that the situation was his fault. He, he kind of knew he'd rebelled. But he, 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 didn't, he seemed to have a bit of a defeatist attitude. Oh, pick me up, throw me in the sea, it will become calm, it's all my fault. He'd recognized it was his fault. He'd not repented. He'd not turned back to God at that point. He'd not, he'd, not, he'd not come before God and said, oh God, I've sinned. Oh, I'm sorry, God. Look with favor on me. I think if he'd done that, probably the storm would have stopped too. I think if, if, if Jonah had repented at that point, there's no more need for the storm. But he didn't. He's accepted. Oh, it's my fault. But his heart's still hard. And sometimes we can do that, can't we? We, we can be in terrible situations, sometimes even life-threatening situations, where we've got no control over the outcome. God's removed every possibility of us controlling our own destiny. No one else can help. What is our response to be? I think, well, surely we're going to turn to God. Not always. Not always. We can respond in other ways. We can get bitter and angry towards God. God, why have you done this to me? Why have you put me in this place? That can be our response. Job had a similar response to that. Oh no, actually he didn't. So in Job, he explains a similar response to that. Job's response on the whole was good. But Job in chapter... 36 and verse 13, he says this, The godless in heart harbor resentment, even when he fetters them, even when God puts pressure on them, he constrains them, they do not cry for help. The godless in heart harbor resentment, even when things, circumstances in their life are going on and they've got no other way out, they do not cry for help. You might know people who are like that. You might know people who you think, I think God is, is, is doing this in this person's life because he's wanting to get their attention. He's wanting to bring them to a point of trusting in him. He's wanting to give them, bring them to a point of giving their life back to him or giving their life to him in the first place. But they don't. They harden their heart. They harbor resentment. They don't cry for help. You're thinking, why? 
Because that's what God says sometimes happens. The godless in heart do that. That's one option that we can have. Or we can humble ourselves like Jonah did and call out to God for our help when we cast on him. And God will answer and forgive. And we see it time and time in Scripture, the two different responses. Two different responses. And you might be sitting here today thinking, well, that's all well and good, but I'm in a difficult situation. God's not going to answer me. God's not going to help me out of this one because I got myself into this mess. I know it's my own fault. That's exactly where Jonah was. The enemy will try and tell us that God isn't going to help us. The enemy will try and tell us, you know, God's not going to bother with you now. You've got yourself into this mess. You're going to have to get yourself out of it. That's what parents say sometimes, isn't it? You got yourself in this mess, you get yourself out of it. God's not like that. God will get us out of the mess that we have got ourselves into. That's the gospel. The summing up of the gospel is God gets us out of the mess that we've got ourselves into. He will do that time and time again. Jonah wasn't exactly walking obediently to Nineveh when he tripped up and fell in the sea, was he? You know, he's, he's in there because of a reason. It's his fault. He was running away from God as hard and fast as he could and as far away. He was guilty, all right. And you know what? We're the same. We're all the same. At some point in our lives, we will have been running away from God as hard and as fast as we could. And maybe you still are today. Because the Bible tells us that that's the case. We might think, no, no, we're a good person. We're all right. I'm not not anti-God. The Bible tells us we are. The Bible tells us we are. Romans 3 and verse 10 says there's no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. No one who seeks God. Don't tell me you're searching for God. You're just doing what you want. No one seeks God. All have turned away. They've together become worthless. There's no one who does good. Not even one. Bible tells us we are running away from God. Before we recognize his gracious hand rescuing us. Why doesn't God sort things out? Why doesn't God save everyone? Why doesn't God do do these things? It's not as though we're all standing there going, God, choose me, choose me. No, we're running away from God as fast as we can. We might think, no, I'm making some room for God in my life. Actually, we just want him to go our own way. We want him to live life how we want. It's fine while things are going okay. You know, oh, you know, just give this prophetic word, all right, to your people uh, to say that the borders are going to be extended. That's what happened to Jonah. Um, That's what he did. He prophesied that Israel's borders would be extended. It did. Oh, fantastic. I'm quite happy to do that. I'm serving you, God. That's fine. What about when God asks you to do something you don't want to do? What about when God says, I want you to give up that relationship? It's unhelpful. What about when God says, I want you to stop going that place? What about when God puts his finger on your life in an area where you say, but I want to keep doing this. And you say, I don't want to go your way, God, anymore. I'm not happy with this thing that you've asked me to do. What's our response going to be then? We might just go our own way. 
We're running away from God. But like Jonah, for many of us, God mercifully rescued us when we were running away from him. You know, the Bible says, whilst we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Whilst we were still sinners, whilst our hearts were still rebellious, whilst we were still running away from God and we said, I want nothing to do with you, God, it was at that point God sent Jesus to come and die for us. And we put him to death. Humanity put him to death. It's what Peter spells out to the crowd that gathers in Acts 2, isn't it? This Jesus, who you killed, who you killed, he's now raised from the dead. It's in him salvation can come. It's in him forgiveness can come. If we've never got to that point in our lives of saying, actually, we're going to recognize that. We're going to, we're going to turn. We're going to call on you, God. Maybe our life has just got in such a mess. And now I'm going to, I'm going to recognize that. I'm going to call on you. If you've never got to that point, God will forgive you. If you humble yourself, if you turn from your wicked ways, if you accept God's verdict on our life, if you accept that God's in control and we're not, then he will forgive us. He'll hear us because of Jesus' death. And we can also see from this passage that God answers us when things are impossible. When things are impossible. Mark chapter 10 and verse 27. Jesus says, because the disciples are saying, oh, this is amazing. Who, who can be saved? Jesus looks at them and says, with man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. All things are possible with God. God answers our prayers when things seem impossible. We might think, oh, well, you know, a few things are happening in our life. It's going, okay, oh, something, something bad's happened now. Well, we can cope. And then another thing hits, and then another, and another. And we can sometimes get to the point where we feel totally overwhelmed. To be honest, that, that, that kind of sums up where we are as a church. You know, we were doing pretty well as a church. We'd not really, you know, I remember saying a couple of years back, you know, we've not really had any sicknesses in this church. The church has been going for you know, 12 years or so. And after, for the first 10 years, there were some exceptions. There were one or two. But on the whole, we were very blessed. We didn't really have any serious illnesses. And then in the last year or two, one after another after another, serious life-threatening illnesses or accidents that happen. You think, well, where's all this come from all of a sudden? It's almost like this storm has come out of nowhere. And we can be left thinking, well, how are we going to cope? How are we going to cope with this? We've got, we've, it's a tough enough situation as it is, and now this as well. Some of us think, how are we going to cope practically? Some of us might think, how am I coping emotionally? Some of us are really struggling, maybe, emotionally to deal with things. I don't understand it. I don't understand how this happens, and this happens, and, oh, no, and, you know, and, oh, I don't understand it. We struggle to cope. Some of the situations look impossible, frankly. But we call out to God for whom nothing is impossible. 
Last Friday was a fantastic example of us doing that in our weekly prayer meeting. We came together and we called out to God and we cried out and we cried out to God for situations which some of which just frankly seemed impossible. Impossible. That's what we were doing. And uh, as an aside, actually, I put this on Facebook. It was fantastic there to see, you know, a group of people and, and so many men there as well, who, uh, men who I know like football. And there was a football match on at the same time, the England football match. Now, maybe you thought we were showing the match, so that's why you'd come. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> I think you got hold, these guys had got hold of something. So well done for coming got hold of something. I thought, no, actually, we're, we're here for God. We're here to call on God. And that's what happened. And that's what happened. And we keep on doing it. And we'll do it this week as well. For Jonah, God answered his prayers when his life was ebbing away in verse 7. In other words, Jonah's at the bottom of the sea. He's just about to lose consciousness. His life is ebbing away. But he's still calling out on God, even though there's nothing that he can see that suggests God's going to answer him. And God sends a fish. Huge fish. Swallows him up. Let's not give up on calling on God, even in impossible situations. He can rescue even at the last moment, even as life is ebbing away. God can answer. But God doesn't always answer us in the way that we want. He doesn't always answer us in the way that we want. Jonah cried out to God and God saved him. How does Jonah think? Well, he probably didn't think about it. But how would we think that God might save Jonah? God sent a huge wave which threw him back up onto the shore. And there he is. Rescued. Dry. God doesn't do that. God sends a huge fish to swallow him up. And there he stays for three days and for three nights. You might think it's kind of out of the frying pan into the fire, so to speak. It's like, what's going on here? This fish was God's way of rescuing him. It was, it was a, a means of God's grace. But I'm not sure it would have looked like that at the time to Jonah. It would have been dark. It would have been stinky. It would have been uncomfortable. It doesn't really look like salvation, does it? This is God saving Jonah. He's in this fish. But Jonah doesn't complain. Jonah's not complaining here, unlike later in the story when he does complain about something far less serious than being in a smelly fish. He's complaining about some plants dying. Not in a good place at that point. At this point, actually, you know, when he's, you might think he's got good reason, he doesn't complain. He does see it as a sign of God's ultimate salvation. He recognizes that God's answered his prayer. Now, it's not finally come about. God's not finished. The fish has got, it's got him for three days before it vomits him, nice descriptive language, out onto the shore. And sometimes we, we can 
fail to recognize God's hand in things. Sometimes God does answer our prayers, but he doesn't answer them in the way that we want. And he might not even answer them fully. We might pray for something to happen, some healing or something, and we think, oh, well, I, yeah, I'm a bit better, but, but I'm not fully healed. Well, how are we going to respond to that? Are we going to praise God for the bit better? Or are we going to go, no, oh, that's no good, God. Well, only half done the job. We can respond in different ways. Jonah could have complained about that. What am I in this fish for? Sometimes it's only part of God's plan. God might still be dealing with us. Jonah praised God. Also, sometimes we can think that life as a Christian is going to be easy and comfortable. And it's not. God doesn't promise us a nice, easy, comfortable Christian life. In fact, he promises the opposite. In John 16, Jesus says, uh, John 16 and verse 33, Jesus says, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. You know, Jesus could be saying that to us. He says, I've given you, I've given you my word. I've told you all these things so that you may have peace, so that you know I'm in control, so that you will trust me. So that you will praise me. But, you know, in this world, right now, where we are now, you will have trouble. There's going to be bad things happen. There's going to be stuff you don't understand. There's going to be hardships. There's going to be opposition. There's going to be persecution. There's going to be sickness. There's going to be death. But I tell you what, take heart, because I've overcome all of that. All of that I have overcome. So take heart. It's only temporary. So in Jonah's second prayer, in the fish, Jonah praying in the fish, some of which is recounting what's happened, we see that he is hoping and trusting and following God. He's remembering what's happened in the sea. He's remembering how God saved him. It's good to do that. It's good to do that and look back at what God has done in your life. You might say, oh, I'm in the belly of a, of, of a stinky fish. You might think your life's like that in some sort of way. This is the situation. I can see the parallels, yeah. So what are you going to do? Jonah looks back and says, you saved me, God. This is what you did. You rescued me. I'm praising you, God. You've done these amazing things. I've turned to you. He's not moaning. When we're in difficult situations, there's a temptation to moan. But let's look back. Look back what God has done in your life. There's something that God will have done because uh, he's, he's saved you. If you know him, he's saved you. You can look back to God rescuing you. You might not know what's going to happen, where God is leading you, how things will turn out, but God is in control and he has rescued you. We have to remember that God is God. He'll do what he wants to do in every situation. God's looking for us to keep trusting him right to the end. And then we'll be numbered amongst those like those of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. You see in Hebrews chapter 11 how God is sovereign, how God acts, how these people keep praising God. It's an amazing chapter if you want to read it through. But towards the end of it, in Hebrews chapter 11, the writer says, well, I don't have time to tell 
about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, gained what was promised, shut the mouth of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies, women received back their dead, raised to life again. They're saying, yeah, there are all the victories that have been won by the people of God, the people of faith. They're counted as people of faith. We're going to see amazing things happen. But then it carries on. Others were tortured and refused to be released so they might gain a better direction. Some faced jeers and floggings. Still others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned. They were sawning too. They were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, ill-treated. The world wasn't worthy of them. They wandered around in deserts and mountains and in caves and holes in the ground. You think, hang on, surely these aren't people of faith. Surely these were the people who didn't really trust God. You know, the ones who saw all the great victories, the lion's mouth shuts, they escaped the, the sword, you know. Yeah, God has delivered us. They're the people of faith. These other people are kind of the ones who... Who really, you know, you would look at and go, oh, you're a bit lacking in faith. I can see why that happened. No, the writer to the Hebrews says these were all commended for their faith. They were all commended for their faith. They all trusted in God that he was sovereign and that he would vindicate them. And that whatever happened, life would be better and they would receive a reward in the end. But they didn't know what was going to happen to them. They might have seen great, seen people and say, oh great, this person was being persecuted. They're about to be put to death and they were saved and they might think, fantastic. But there's no guarantee that that's going to happen to them. And we have the same. We might see people miraculously healed by God and we think, fantastic, we're going to pray to God, we're going to seek for God for healing. And yeah, we should do that and God calls us to, and asks us to do that. But if people do not get healed, That doesn't mean that God is not sovereign, that that is not part of God's plan. It doesn't mean that person was lacking in faith. These are all commended for their faith. We can't twist God's arm to make things happen the way we think they should happen. It's God who's in control. And when you're inside a great fish, you can't see what's happening. Jonah wouldn't have been able to see what was going on. The fish actually was heading back towards dry land. You know, the sailors had tried to row their boat there, but they couldn't. Well, the fish is heading back towards dry land because after three days, it vomits him him out onto the shore, onto the dry ground. Did Jonah know that the fish was heading back to dry land? No, because he couldn't see, could he? He didn't have a little periscope. It popped up. Oh, yes, we're getting there. He didn't know what was going on. He didn't know how long he was going to be in there. Three nights, three years, the rest of his life. He didn't know. He trusted in God. Often in our life, we can't see what God is doing. We just don't know. We just don't know. We're helpless. And sometimes because of that, we can get consumed with fear. But God knows what he's doing. God's working on us, even when we're in those situations. Greg Haslam says, the belly of the fish is where our lives are reduced to nearly nothing. 
Not so our lives will be crippled, but divinely arranged as a place where our lives are about to be fulfilled. I'll read that again. The belly of the fish is where our lives are reduced to nearly nothing. Not so our lives will be crippled, but divinely arranged as the place where our lives are about to be fulfilled. While we're in the depths, while we're in the fish, in the troubles of life, in the desperation, there may be loss. But God will replace what is lost with fresh resources from his heart. Jonah recognizes that. In verse 8, he says, Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. If you cling on, if you cling on to things which are ultimately worthless, which are ultimately not going to be of value, which have become idols in your life, maybe things that aren't too bad to start off with, maybe things God has given us for our pleasure, but not our ultimate pleasure. If they start to become idols and we're just clinging on to them, oh God, I'm not going to let go of that. I'm keeping hold of that in my life. Don't, don't ask me to do that, God. Don't ask me to go there. Don't ask me that thing. Jonah's seen it. It says, those who cling to worthless idols, they forfeit the grace. It could be theirs. What are we clinging on to in our lives? Whatever the answer to that is, apart from God, in the end they will slip away and be proved to have no lasting worth. And you'll have forfeited the grace of God on your life in that area. God knows what he's doing. He's dealing with us in the darkness of the fish. And however long that lasts for you, you won't be the same person when you come back out of it. But in the meantime, let's like Jonah respond with a song of thanksgiving and praise, knowing that our salvation comes from God. Let's pray.